Hello, you're listening to Pan Am, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place and the traces they've left behind. I'm Amber and today we're heading back to the gallows of Montfaucon, specifically to the 2nd of August 1343. Had we been standing here all those years ago, we would have witnessed the displaying of the headless body of Olivier de Clisson IV, executed first in Paris for being a traitor, then decapitated, his head sent to Nantes in Brittany to be displayed on the city walls, and his body brought here to be hung. It was his execution that put into motion a whole host of events, at least according to legend. You see, Olivier was married to Jeanne de Clisson, also known as Jeanne de Belleville, or by her nickname, the Lioness of Brittany, and was France's first and fiercest female pirate, driven to the high seas and to war with the French king in order to avenge her husband's death. So come with me to find out just how much of this remarkable revenge story is true. Let's start by finding out a little bit about Jeanne and how her life took such an unexpected turn. Jeanne was born around 1300 in Brittany to a noble and wealthy family. She was first married at the tender age of 12 to a young Breton nobleman. At 14, and then again at 16, she had her children, Geoffrey and Louise. But then in 1327, her husband died, leaving her a wealthy, and by all accounts, beautiful, widow. She was then briefly married a second time, but without going into too many details, this was annulled by the Pope. Apparently the family had opposed the union and it caused quite the scandal. Her third husband was Olivier de Clisson IV, another wealthy Breton nobleman and knight. And they were a good team, apparently similar in age and both bringing to the marriage wealth and land. Jeanne, from both her inheritance, from her family, she was an only child, but also following the death of her first husband. But it was not just any land. A lot of it was salt marshes at a time when salt was considered to be white gold as it was the only way of preserving food. Together, they had five children, Isabeau, Maurice, Olivier, Guillaume and baby Jeanne. So by the age of 30, Jeanne had had three marriages and seven children. No mean feat, considering that childbirth was often fatal at this time. From the excellent book Pirate Women, The Princesses, Prostitutes and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas by Laura Suk Duncomb, we have these terrifying statistics. Quote, an estimated 20% of all women in the Middle Ages died in childbirth, 5% during the birth itself and another 15% due to complications after labour. Jeanne, however, was clearly a survivor. So here we have a wealthy, land-owning, childbirth-surviving woman who was also very independent. Now, this was because Olivier was often away at war. Keep in mind that at this time, Brittany was an independent feudal state and Breton's loyalties were often divided, some to the English and some to the French, but the majority considered themselves neither English nor French but were rather loyal to the Duke of Brittany. I've lived in France for quite a long time and I still find people from Breton to be a little bit like this. They consider themselves Breton 
before they're French. I mean, not all of them, but there is definitely a very strong identity in Brittany. So I can only imagine what it must have been like back then. So then in 1341, the Duke of Brittany dies without an heir. And so both the French and the English claim his lands because, well, of course they do. This was known as the War of Breton Succession and it was being fought simultaneously as the Hundred Years' War which we got into last time with the Knights Templar and all of that. So you've got these two wars going on at the same time, the Breton War of Succession and the Hundred Years' War. Now, Olivier was loyal to France, the king and the French candidate for the post of the Duke of Brittany, Charles de Blois. But then in 1342, things went very wrong for Jeanne and Olivier and their family. Now, following the defeat at Vannes, Olivier was taken prisoner by the English. But he was released, as was custom with high-ranking prisoners, in a sort of prisoner swap in exchange for the Earl of Stafford. However, the low ransom that accompanied his deal made Charles de Blois, who was the French candidate, remember, for the Duke of Brittany, very suspicious that Olivier was actually a traitor. Now, I have read both that he actually did switch sides to support the English, um, and it is true that Olivier's brother was fighting for the English, but more often I've seen the contrary, and that he was indeed loyal to France and to Charles. Now, don't worry if this all sounds rather confusing, just know that Olivier's loyalty to France is in question. Charles, unfortunately, had the ear of the king and whispered his suspicions to him. The king at the time, if you're wondering, is none other than Philip VI of Valois. Now, whether the king believed Olivier to be a traitor or saw an opportunity to take control of Olivier de Clisson's vast and lucrative lands in Brittany, I do not know. Maybe both are true. There is certainly those who think so. But who is to say? Anyway, the result is that in 1343, King Philip hatched a rather ignoble plan. He invited Olivier to Paris to take part in a tournament, ostensibly to celebrate the truce with England. So far, so medieval. Olivier is happy as he likes nothing better than a fun day of jousting. So off he heads to Paris, leaving Jeanne once again in charge of the lands, the estate and all the children. But it is a dastardly trick. There is no jousting. Upon his arrival in Paris, he's promptly arrested for treason and likely tortured. There followed a sham trial and Olivier, along with a handful of other nobles who had the misfortune of being blamed for France's recent defeats at the hands of the English, was sentenced to death. And you know the rest. Decapitation, display, head to Brittany to be put on a pike as a warning to other would-be traitors. From the book Jeanne de Belleville by Émile Perron, a book that tells her story, though written in 1868, so by no means a contemporary account, but rather an imagined one, uh, and one that went a long way to make this story very famous, I shall quote you. Arrested under the eyes and by order of the king, scourged with name of traitor and without further proof, then to put the final touch of so much ignominy for every corpse has a right to the blessed earth, serving on two gibbets as a pasture for the vulture, the body to Montfaucon, the head to Sauveteur. Jeanne is now a widow and, outraged by this unfair treatment of her husband, apparently takes her two sons... Where are all her other children? There is no mention of them, so I don't know. I know at least one of them died quite young, but as to the other four, not a word. Anyway, 
she takes her two sons, Olivier and Guillaume, to Nantes to see their father's head, which must have been an incredibly gruesome sight. And there, looking up upon that gruesome sight, curses the king and all involved in her husband's murder. Just one word on the king. As I've said, it's Philip VI, first of the new dynasty of the Valois, and thus known as the Fortunate, after the last cursed kings had died out, following all the drama of the Knights Templar and the curse of Jacques de Molay, which you can find out more about in my episode on the Knights Templar. Imagine my pleasure, then, to find out that this fortunate king is himself cursed. It makes you wonder if all the kings of France have been cursed. Anyway, unlike Jacques de Molay, who kept it snappy, probably due to the flames leaping up around him, Jeanne, at least according to fiction, took her time and really made sure she'd covered everyone in her curse. And to give you a flavour of her supposed oath, here it is. Because if you're going to curse someone, I mean, you may as well do it properly. Now, this is my own translation, as I couldn't find it in English, and it's from our friend Emile's book. So here goes. Deceivers of Clisson, Philip de Valois, you judges, you executioners and you, Charles de Blois, all that on earth took part in the torment, as author, as actor, instrument or accomplice, those who will join in what has been done, those who will prevent me from avenging the crime, be cursed in the name of all nature, cursed by God, cursed by every creature, cursed in every place where you are, in the city, in the army, in the fields where you flee, cursed in your homes and cursed in the church, cursed by the hurricane and cursed by the breeze, by the stars of the night and by the sun." Cursed in the daytime, cursed in sleep, cursed in your pleasures, cursed on your bed, cursed in the kisses of your mouth, cursed in your children, cursed in your loves, cursed in all your goods, cursed, 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 always, from the soles of your feet to the tops of your heads, in all that you dream or do on earth, cursed in your thirst, cursed in your hunger, cursed, cursed, Everywhere, what shall I tell you at last? Cursed in your body and cursed in your soul. Let nothing remain healthy. Let everything be infamous. May your name be an object of horror to all. May God become a terror to you in prayer. And when the last hour dawns on your forehead, let no priest say a prayer for you. Let your bodies pushed far, far away from the Christians. Let your bodies rot in the air where dogs rot. Then, when you ascend to the supreme judge, may Jesus himself, in his majesty, rise up against you and plunge you at once into the eternal fires where Judas awaits you. That is quite the curse. As you can see, Jeanne was angry. And she had reason to be, because it's worth noting that Jeanne herself is, as the wife of a traitor, now also considered to be a traitor, and thus her titles, property and land were confiscated. This meant that she would have no more income, and her sons could not become knights or progress in any real meaningful way in society, as the widow of a traitor should be shunned everywhere. Now, she could have retired to a convent, which was probably what was expected of her, but that was not her style. So, instead, having nothing and so nothing to lose, and brimming with rage and fury at the injustice of it all, she decides to fight to regain her honour and her property and goes to war against the King of France. This is the tale of what supposedly 
happened next. Her first move was to attack a castle which was loyal to the crown and Charles de Blois. They knew her at the castle, so when she showed up at the door, they let her in. But little did they know that she'd managed to raise an army. And so once she was in, she let them in and they promptly set about killing everyone and ransacking the place. It seems to have had no real tactical purpose other than letting the king know she was angry and out for vengeance. Then she was able to raise funds to buy three ships, which she painted black, giving them the name the Black Fleet. And to make them even more distinctive and terrifying, she painted the sails blood red. She herself could be found in the flagship named, of course, My Revenge. Then for the next 13 years, she operated as a pirate in the English Channel, sometimes even attacking towns along the coast of France. She was renowned for her cruelty. Upon capturing a French vessel, she would mercilessly kill the whole crew, especially any nobles, usually decapitating them herself with an axe, then throwing their bodies into the sea. But she was always sure to leave one survivor to spread the gruesome tale, to warn others of what awaited them should they cross her path, and above all, to send a message back to the king. Hell hath no fury like a Breton woman scorned. Finally, the French fleet were able to sink her, but she manages to escape with her two children and they set off on a little rowboat. Sadly, Guillaume died from exposure. She was, however, able to make it to England, where she was welcomed with open arms by the English king, the enemy of my enemy and all that. Ultimately, she married an English nobleman, returned to France and was able to recuperate most of her land. That's the story. But how much of it is true and how much is legend? Alas, as I'm sure you've realised, a lot of this information comes from the legend. And you can see why. A vengeful pirate going to war, seeking revenge and havoc, very bloodthirsty. I mean, it's a great story. It's irresistible, and both sides used it. Her allies used it to paint a picture of this fearsome warrior, and of course her enemies used it to imply that she was devilish, bloodthirsty sort. But what real facts do we actually have, or do we have any at all? Was she even really a pirate? Well, the answer is yes, she was. And although there's not much evidence, there is some that prove that she was indeed a real person, and at least part of this story is true. By all accounts, Jeanne did indeed raise an army and invade a castle, loyal to the crown, by pretending to be just passing by, and then bloodily took it down in an act of vengeance. Then, since indeed she had no land or resources, she did take to the sea and got up to some pirate-like activities, which included stealing, plundering and killing. Did she paint her ships black and dye the sails blood red? This, it seems, was sadly fantasy, but it's possible because I don't have confirmation either way. Did she personally chop off heads of French sailors and nobles loyal to the king with an axe? Maybe, and if she did, it must have been a brutal affair, as head chopping is not easy. What is known is that 
in England, she did have friends, including her brother-in-law, and we even have court records that show that she made it to England and was indeed welcomed by the English king, who called her my chère cousine Breton, and that she attended court and advised the English on the ongoing Hundred Years' War. Then, it seems she did indeed work as a privateer, a sort of mercenary pirate employed by the British. And she did marry a British man, move back to France, and was able to regain some of her land before dying at the ripe old age of 60. Of what? We don't know. But 60's not bad for that time. Interestingly, it's her son, Olivier de Clisson V, that will bring this story full circle. Now, although he grew up in the English court, as an adult, he returned to France. The war is still going on and will continue for some time. But he ultimately ends up switching sides and joining the French. And through various friendships and alliances, he's able to move up the ranks until he is named as the Connetable, which is the first officer of the crown and in charge of the army and a pretty big deal. He's able to regain his parents' lands, titles and more and re-establishes the name of de Clisson. His methods were often brutal, and he's even nicknamed the Butcher. Maybe he did learn a thing or two at his mother's side, and so some of those stories are true after all. Now, I was just about to wrap up this episode when I stumbled upon something fabulous. As you know, I love to be able to visit something in Paris, something tangible that links us to the past and the story we're exploring. Obviously, I'm not keen to go and see a gibbet, and luckily, there is nothing of it left. But because Olivier V became so powerful, he built himself a rather fancy house in Paris. And today, a little corner of that building still exists. So let's head off to the Marais to check it out. Here we are at number 58, Rue des Archives, and we can see two satisfying medieval-looking little turrets sticking out of what is today known as the Hôtel de Soubise and is part of the building of the National Archives. You can visit them. The gardens are especially pleasant. They are all that remains of what would have been a rather grand abode built by Olivier in the 14th century and known as the Hôtel du Clisson. And while Olivier's story, and certainly that of his mother's, is rather exciting, this address has also seen quite a lot of drama. In 1533, the hotel passed into the hands of the Guise family, a prominent and important Catholic family. And it's even been speculated that the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre may have been organised here. Today, when we look up, we can see above the grand doorway various heraldic symbols – Although they are not from the 14th century, they have been made in the style to fit in with the architecture and probably date from the restoration work that took place in 1847. They show the emblems of Olivier de Clisson, so a lion on a shield, and a crowned M, which seems to both refer to his wife, Marguerite, and the Virgin. We also see on the door the painted arms of the Guise family. But that is a story for another day. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to bringing you another one soon. I'll put up pictures on Instagram and my website if you want to see uh, what's left uh, of Olivier's lovely house, um, as well as sources and all the usual stuff. And in case you're wondering, the music that I played throughout, which you can find on YouTube, is called Jeanne de Clisson. No surprises there. And it's by a group called Stetris and I'll link to them uh, 
in the show notes and on my website, of course. And if you can't understand the words, I think you might be able to find them somewhere. Needless to say, they tell the story of Jeanne. I look forward to speaking to you soon. And if you've enjoyed the show, leave a review or just tell a friend or just carry on listening. Take care. Bye bye.